Good morning. Let's stand together, hear from God's word. The end of Psalm 29 says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned, king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace. There is no surer reign than our king's. There is no surer word than our king's word. And there is no better promise or peace than the one that he brings. May this year be marked with God's people trusting in and standing on God's word. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus hath led. Fear not, fear not, I am with thee, O oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help. And cause thee to stand upheld by my rod, just some different man. He's with us when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to be thy deepest distress. So we lean on him, the soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never for that soul. That soul, though all hell, should endeavor to shake. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. How firm a foundation is laid for your faith in God's excellent word. May that shape this worship service. May that shape uh, our next year and may it shape our lives uh, from here forth. Amen. You could be seated. And welcome to this first Lord's Day of 2021. If each Lord's Day is to shape the rest of the week, it is indeed the first day of the week, rightly so. Well, then maybe uh, this Lord's Day will rightly shape the rest of this year to come. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we would love to serve you. We would love to help you. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to be of whatever kind of help we can to you. Perhaps you're looking for a new church home. Um, perhaps you're um, just beginning to explore things of a spiritual nature. 
And uh, however we can help, we'd love to. You can reach out to us over email, especially if you're tuning in online. We're at info at dscabq.com. Uh, or perhaps if you're here in the room, we'd love to meet you if you're visiting with us. We'd love to start to get to know you and, again, to answer any questions you might have about our church or what we believe uh, or about especially the Lord Jesus. Uh, for those of you who are members here, uh, it's a good thing for us to remember. Our quarterly members meeting is coming up at the end of January. It's January 27th, a Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. This is for members um, but it's for all members. So if you're a member, this is for you. This is something really important we do. This is far from just a business meeting. Uh, this is where we exercise the keys of the kingdom. We do some things in a members meeting that we don't do in any other slot of church life together. And these are important things. One of the things we'll do at this upcoming members meeting is we'll hand out a hard copy members directory uh, and we'll begin to pray through that. We'll, we'll lay out a plan for us praying through our members' directory together as a church in 2021 and beyond, not just 2021. So uh, if you can't make the members' meeting, just email the church for a hard copy of that members' directory. Uh, we'd be glad to send you one in the mail. If you can make the members' meeting, we need you to RSVP as usual for you know all events where we're in person. We need to know who's coming and uh, when we reach that cap of um, enough people in the room. So you can RSVP on our website. Just click Upcoming at the top, and you'll see where to, re to RSVP there. Uh, or if you have the DSC app on your phone, that's uh, maybe the quickest and easiest way to RSVP for anything we do these days. Well, let me pray for our time together this morning. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, we come to you this day recognizing afresh that we are needy sinners. We are aware of our need for grace. We are aware of our need for a Savior. Lord, make us aware and more aware in days to come. May we ever be aware of our need of a Savior. And may we grow in thankfulness for such a Savior as we've been given. Such a Savior that has come. Such a Savior that died and was raised on the third day and now intercedes for us. So on this Lord's Day, we celebrate his resurrection again we commit it to you. We ask for your help. We pray that as songs are sung, that we would listen, that we would meditate, that we would tune our hearts to worship and thanks. Lord, that as prayers are offered, that we would all pray in our hearts and our minds, and we would pray to you, our God, who is near. Lord, we pray that as we hear from your word, we pray that we would sit with eager anticipation and expectation to receive what you have for us today. You have plans for your word to go forth, and we pray it would go forth successfully according to your plans. We pray that with great confidence because you've promised it so, especially in Isaiah 55. We thank you for your plans for us on this Lord's day. Lord, may we again find mercy. May we again find a Savior afresh who is sufficient for all our needs. We pray in his name. Amen.
Let us stand and continue in prayer, continue in confession in our hearts to God.
bow with me. Let's pray for this transition from 2020 to this next year. Oh Lord, we confess that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus, you are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Lord, we thank you, especially after a year of so much change, so much surprise, so much that was unexpected, so much that seemed chaotic. We thank you that you're the same. You've been the same. You are the same. You will be the same. Not one of your attributes has waned. Not one could be called into question. You are fully sovereign, fully wise, and completely good in everything you have been, you are, you will be. Lord, we thank you for a word, the scriptures which do not change. We thank you, Lord, for a gospel that doesn't change. Lord, when everything around us seems to change and seems to be uncertain, and as we stand on the precipice of a new year, not knowing what's next, not knowing what will change, wishing some things would change, and maybe they will, maybe they won't, maybe it won't be soon enough from our perspective, but you don't change. And while we confess that, Lord, we also boldly but humbly pray for more in many ways. The Apostle Paul prayed for the Thessalonians that though they loved each other already, they'd love each other more and more. 
And though they were pleasing you, that they would do so in more and more. So Lord, we boldly pray for more understanding of your love and grace and the gospel, more appreciation and confidence and the security and safety that we have in the gospel. We pray for more opportunities to share that gospel in this next year. We pray for boldness as we represent you to the world. Lord, may we more often than not resonate with the apostles of Acts 4 that we can't help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. Lord, we pray for more gospel fruit in 2021 than we had in 2020. We pray for the salvation of our friends and family. Lord, we pray for more Bible and prayer in our lives in this next year. More eagerness to open your word alone and together as families and as a church. More comfort in prayer. More eagerness to go to you in prayer. More familiarity with your presence. Lord, we pray for holiness. We pray for a closer walk with you in this next year. We pray for more sensitivity to sin. We pray for more quickness of conviction when we sin. We pray for a quickness and readiness to go your way when we're tempted. We pray for more Christ-likeness. We pray for more of Colossians 3.1 in our lives in this next year, that we set our mind on things above and not on things of the earth. Lord, we pray for less of an attachment to the things of this world. We pray for patience, more patience. We, we pray for your perspective on circumstances, your perspective, more of your perspective on trials. We pray you'd grow us together in this as a church. So we pray for more unity, more love for each other, more peace in the body. We pray, Lord, for your help. We pray, Lord, for more dependence upon you. And we pray for more of your glory in this next year. Oh, Lord, you have shown your glory in creation and in the scriptures, and it is everywhere. It pours forth speech just in this world, let alone what we see in your word. And so, Lord, we thank you for what we have, and we boldly and humbly pray for more of your glory in this next year. We pray it because of Jesus and his cross, his resurrection, and all his promises that are unchanging and certain now and forever. Amen. Let us stand and behold the work of our Savior on the cross for us.
church. Our passage this morning is from the book of Matthew, so if you'll please turn there in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 10. We'll be covering verses 34 to 39 this morning. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. We'll also have these words up on the screen. This is Jesus speaking. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard verses. So I pray that you would be especially gracious to us this morning, that you would work by your spirit to help all of us to meditate rightly on these words. Help me to say things about these words that are true and that are helpful. And I pray that everyone in here would would think the right thoughts after you. And Lord, that you would help us all to love you more than anything in this life so that we would be worthy of you. In your name we pray, amen. So why did Jesus come? That's the question that we've been trying to answer as we've been going through this series over the last few weeks, looking at these statements that Jesus himself makes in the Gospels where he answers that question, I have come to and some of the things that we've looked at in recent weeks, they're, they're pretty familiar. They're even obvious. No less profound, but when somebody asks you, hey, why did Jesus come to earth from heaven? These would probably be the things that we would think of, right? Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. Jesus came to die on the cross. And some of the other things that we've looked at are a little bit more surprising, probably wouldn't be the first place that we go to. Jesus came preaching. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Well, our passage this morning, I think, is the most surprising answer to this question that we find. In fact, I think these are some of the most startling verses in the whole Bible. But as we'll see, they're also vital for us as we seek to follow Jesus in this life. Because this passage teaches us about the division, the persecution that comes about through our repentance and faith in Jesus. And that's a division 
that strikes even at our most intimate relationships. So that's what we'll look at first in verse 34. A faith that divides. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Faith that divides. Verse 34 says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I just, show of hands, who put that on their Christmas card this year? Anybody? Okay, well, stick that one in your pocket for next year, okay? Next Christmas. No, these are not Christmassy verses, to, to use a word that I think Pastor Ryan coined. And didn't Isaiah say in the famous Christmas passage that the Messiah would be the Prince of Peace? And didn't the angels, when they announced the Christ's birth to the shepherds, say that it meant peace on earth? What is Jesus talking about when he seems to be saying the exact opposite right here? Oh no, I did not come to earth to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Is he contradicting himself? To understand how Jesus is both the prince of peace, and he is, and yet he also comes not to bring peace, we have to understand who it is that he is saying he's making peace with. The peace that Jesus first comes to make is peace along what we call the vertical axis. This is peace between us and God. And that presupposes that we were not at peace with God, right? Which is right. If you read through the Bible, it repeatedly uses words like hostility and rebellion and enmity, being an enemy to describe how we in our natural sinful state relate to God. We are at a state of hostility with God. We are at war with God. It's a war that started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when humanity sought to exert their own control over territory that was God's, namely their own lives. They try to push God off of his throne and assert their own autonomy. And that's a war that each one of us has been fighting in ever since. So we have all been born committing acts of insurrection. You know what insurrection is? It's like an armed rebellion fighting against God. Sin, our disobedience to God's command, is war. We are not at peace with God. In fact, Romans chapter one says that all people in their sinful state are haters of God. We hate God, even if we don't realize it. We hate what God claims to have rights over. We hate what God tells us to do. We hate God. But even when we were God's enemy, and even when God hated, or when we hated God, God loved us. This is the gospel. This is what we call the gospel. Gospel means good news. This is the good news. Okay, Romans chapter five, verse eight. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians chapter one, 19 and 20 says, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's our Prince of Peace, amen? 
The whole reason Jesus came was to die and suffer the wrath, the punishment that we deserved for our rebellion against God. Jesus made himself God's enemy on the cross so that we could have peace. So in a very real sense, the gospel is a peace offering, peace between you and God. And so I wonder, have you accepted that peace offering? Because to accept it means to admit first that you are at war with God, that you do hate God, that you have been trying to push God off of what is by rights his, your own life. And you have to lay down your arms. You have to stop fighting God. And as soon as you do that, God's not angry at you. He doesn't put you in prison. He receives you in perfect peace. Because everything that you deserved was poured out on his son. That's the gospel. We have peace along that vertical axis. Peace with God. So that's how Jesus is the prince of peace. And when we're reconciled to God along this vertical axis, it has profound implications for what happens along this horizontal axis, which is our relationships with other people. So first of all, when we are reconciled to God and someone else is reconciled to God, we're reconciled with them. So this is another way that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Everyone that has made peace with God is joined together in the same kingdom. We're all on the same team. This is what we looked at last week in John chapter 12. That it doesn't matter where you're from or what you've done or who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're black or you're white. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or if you're a man or if you're a woman. If you've been reconciled to God, then you've been reconciled with all of those people because Jesus died for each of you. You're all reconciled by the same blood. So our whole kingdom is a kingdom of peace with one another. But for all of those who have not been reconciled to God, who are outside of that Kingdom, who are still in the domain of darkness, as the Apostle Paul says. Well, suddenly, where we were once enemies of God and now have been reconciled to God, they're still enemies of God. They see us as now on God's side. So, what does that make us? They're enemies. It doesn't go both ways. We don't see them as enemies, but they still see us as their enemies. And there comes the sword that Jesus is talking about. This is the division. This is the hostility that arises from a faith that divides. This whole chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, it's one big discourse. It's one big block of teaching that Jesus gives us. And it's, and it's really important. At the end of chapter 9, the text says that Jesus saw these crowds of people coming to him in great need. And Jesus looks on them and he loves them. He has compassion on them and he wants to meet their needs. And he's standing there with his disciples and he says to them, look at this. You see, this is a harvest. He tells the disciples, pray to God that he would send laborers out into that harvest. And then in chapter 10, Jesus takes those same disciples and sends them out into the harvest. So he says, you know what? I'm just going to use you to answer your own prayers. Go. Go and, and preach this gospel of peace. 
And so in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says that that's what they'll do. And you know what? Some people are going are to hear that gospel of peace, and they're going to want peace with God. They're going to be people of peace. But even more people, Jesus says, are going to persecute them for that very message that they're preaching. Matthew 10 is mostly about the persecution that his disciples will face because of their faith in Jesus. In Matthew 10, 16, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And in 10, 24, he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If the world hates me, it's going to hate you too. So he says, get ready. Don't be surprised that there's hostility. You've switched sides. They hate me, they're gonna hate you. But you still gotta go. And that hate, that division is gonna reach even to the most intimate relationships in your lives. That's what he says in verses 35 to 39, where he talks about faith and family. So verses 35 to 39 are faith and family. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This faith that divides affects our family. Now under this point, I've actually got five sub-points. Okay, so five points under this point, faith and family. And the first is for us to just step back and consider what family actually is. Because if we're confused about this, then we're going to be really confused about what Jesus is saying in these verses. So, so first, we'll just look at the fundamentals of family. When Jesus says, I have come to cause this division between a son and his father, a daughter and her mother. What Jesus isn't saying is that that's a good thing. He's not saying that family is somehow bad or even that family isn't important. That's not what he's saying at all because that's not what the Bible says. And that's not what our own experience says. We all know that family is so important. And each one of us can say, for better or for worse, the family that we grew up with or did not grow up with has influenced our lives more than probably anything else. And that's by design. When God made family, it's a design that goes all the way back to the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, when God created man in his own image, he didn't make an individual. He made a family. He made Adam and Eve And he told them to have children and to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When things are going according to God's plan, the family is meant to be the ordinary, even the primary way that people are protected, that they're provided for, that they have their sense of intimacy and companionship. It's even where we get our identity in some good ways and and even a sense of purpose. The family's a good thing. Most of all, the family was meant to be the place where training the next generation in Godwardness happened. The family was supposed to be the primary engine for how the next generation got taught about the things of God and got pointed in a Godward direction. That was God's plan. Family is important. And even in a fallen world, the importance of family hasn't gone away. It's just been corrupted. So when Jesus says, I have come, to set a father 
against his son, what he's not saying is I've come to take away the fundamental importance of family. What he's saying is I've come to redeem family. I've come to redeem family by teaching us that family is important, but it's not supposed to be the most important relationship in a human's life. This all goes back to those axes. The most important relationship we have is first and foremost our reconciled relationship to God. Until we get that right, everything horizontally is gonna be messed up. So Jesus says, I have come to set this relationship right, and you need to understand how this relationship affects this relationship. So that's our next point. Family versus faith. Why does the gospel divide families? Douglas O'Donnell is a pastor in Illinois, and he wrote this. He says, the cross is a sword. Because its message is not the message that insurrectionists want to hear. Who wants to hear that he is sinful at the core of his being? And who wants to hear that in Jesus' death, God has opened the gates of freedom and peace for all insurrectionists if and only if they stop their insurrection? And who then wants to hear that God won't permit such insurrection to go unchallenged forever. That judgment awaits those who will not accept this peace treaty from the Prince of Peace. That's the message that Jesus has sent all of us out proclaiming. The gospel starts with an admission that, that you're wicked, that your works are evil, that you have been sinning against God. And so we go out and we And we tell people that. And we're not supposed to be offensive as we tell people that. We try to be as loving and as respectful as we can, but that's offensive. People don't want to hear that. Much less if they sit under judgment, and that judgment can only be appeased if they would stop sinning, they would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. John chapter 3 says, The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. I don't mean this to sound insensitive, but, but sin makes us very much like cockroaches. Have you ever had to deal with cockroaches? I hope not. Because you know what happens, right? The lights are off, and they come out. They're doing their gross thing. And then you flip the lights on. What do they do? As fast as they can, they get to the darkest places in that room because they hate the light. We don't want to hear the things that we love are actually evil. We don't want to... We don't want to be in a position of having to confess to someone else that we've been wrong about something or that we deserve judgment. We don't want to hear about hell. And so most people in this life get really good at organizing their whole lives in such a way that they are as far away from the light as possible. They don't want to risk the light even coming on. Most people in this world, they only hang out with other people that 
think the same things that they do, that believe the same things that they do, that call evil good just like they do. Most people in this world want to stay as far away from the light of the gospel as possible. But when God saves somebody in a family, in a household, when he reaches in and helps that person see that they're at war with God, and they repent and they believe and they're made right with God suddenly, it's like God just turned the lights on in that house and everybody else that lives there has nowhere to hide. And they hate it. That confronts them. That, that person, that believer in their house, it confronts them. They can, they're confronted with that person's words. Lord willing, they're sharing the same gospel with those men and women in their house but they're even just confronted by their actions, by their righteousness. That person's not walking in the dark anymore. They're walking in the light. They're not, they're not continuing in the same sin. And just watching somebody else that, that is that righteous, being that close to that light, they hate it. And they can't get away from it. They can't run away. And so they feel like there's nothing else to do but to confront it back. And this is where the sword comes in. This is why there's conflict. This is why a believing spouse will experience so much friction with their unbelieving husband or wife. This is why unbelieving children will distance themselves from believing parents to the point that that relationship becomes estranged. Because in our sin, we hate the light. We want to just get far away from it. So when it comes down to it, if you are experiencing hostility from your family, you need to know what's at the root of that. It's not really about you. It's about God. They still hate God, just like you did. And their hostility says that they love their sin more than they love you. And that hurts. That hurts so bad. Because, what did we just say? Family, by God's design, was meant to be this good thing, right? It was meant to be where you felt safe. It was meant to be where you felt companionship and intimacy. It was meant to be the thing that pointed you to God. But when family, this, this such this important thing, is turned against you, when it becomes a source of enmity, when it becomes a source of hostility, when it becomes a force that's trying to tear you away from God, it's one of the most tragic effects of the fall in this life. And I was reminded, preparing this, that Jesus knows personally how bad that hurts. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, the Gospels tell us that there were a number of times where Jesus' own family, his, his brothers and his mom, they didn't understand what he was doing. They told him that he was out of his mind. They tried to get him to turn it down. So Jesus was in the same position that he's putting before us. He was in a conflict between faith, his faith in God, his perfect faith in God, and his family. And he had to make a choice. And it's the same choice that we have to make, which is our next point, faith over family. Verse 37 says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Jesus uses the word love here. And the kind of love that he's talking about is a cherishing love or a valuing love. And he's not saying that there's anything wrong with loving your family. We should love our families. It's right to value our families. Again, family is a good thing. But what Jesus is saying is it's wrong to love your family more than Jesus. And sometimes this sort of faith puts that love to the test. I remember hearing the testimony of a sister who was about to be baptized at the church that we came from in Kentucky. And she came to faith in her 50s. Somebody else in our church, a friend of hers in our church, had just invited her to Bible study, and and she believed the gospel. And she repented of a life that was lived in darkness. And she wanted to be baptized in our church. In our church, they would share testimony standing in the water. Okay, so she's standing in the water and she's telling us about how much she's lost because of her faith in Jesus. She told us about her husband who was not supportive of her decision at all. And he started to pick at her. He started to ridicule her. He started to make her life really inconvenient in kind of little passive aggressive ways. He'd say things to her like, you're not any fun anymore. And in all of that, what he was doing to her, there was kind of this this implicit offering. It was its own kind of peace offering. I'm gonna make our home as contentious as possible until you give up on this Jesus stuff. If you would just quit, quit church, quit the gospel, come back, to the way that things used to be, then then we'll have peace in our home again. Everything will be back to normal. We'll probably even be happier than we were. And so she had to choose. And she was standing there that morning in the water telling us that she wasn't going to go back. She loved her husband. wasn't that. She loved her family. But she loved Jesus more than anything. And when it came down to it, she was going to choose to follow Jesus. He would just say, why? It doesn't make any sense unless you believe verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. This is what we looked at last week in John 12. If you value things in this life and you hold on too tightly such that they lead you to not believe in Jesus, you're gonna hold on to those things, but you'll die. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's what she was saying. She knew that if she loved her husband and her marriage more, if she did what she could to preserve peace in her home, if she took her husband up on that offer, she might have a happy marriage. She might have a really comfortable, peaceful home for the rest of her life and then she would die and go to hell forever. And she knew that even in that moment, 
she would be missing out on a relationship that is infinitely greater than any relationship that she could have with any man. And that was a reconciled relationship with her creator and the bridegroom of the church, Jesus Christ. And so she stood there and she said, I am committing myself to follow Jesus. I'm gonna take up my cross and follow Jesus. I am going to endure this. I'm going to love my husband as well as I can and I'm gonna put up with whatever he throws at me, but I'm gonna follow Jesus. And we as a church watched her get baptized and in that we committed to helping her in that, in that fight. She had chosen faith over family. And really, if you think about it, that was actually the most loving thing that she could do for her husband. This is the irony here. When our families are are trying to pull us back into those dark crevices of our old lives, when they're trying to get us to turn down the light because it's bothering them, what we're actually doing is, is we're hurting them. Because what they need is the same thing that we need, which is to be reconciled back to God. So if we turn down the lights on our witness, if we try to get along so that we can go along in our homes, just so we can keep some peace, so we can avoid some conflict, we're actually being unloving. What our unbelieving family needs is for us to shine that light. We might be the only Christian that they are around, ever. And God has placed you in their home to preach the gospel to them, to even endure hardship in front of them, even when they are the cause of that hardship, so that that light shining so brightly in their face might finally break through the darkness in their heart, and God would save them too. Right after the first service, Honestly, I could preach a whole sermon with just stories that people told me after the first service because so many of you have endured this very thing. I know you have. But one brother, Rick Fragua, his wife, Desiree, is on staff here at the church. Um, they're part of the Jemez Pueblo. And he told me about his grandmother. So his grandmother, so this is living memory. She became a Christian. And her husband turned her in to the tribal court. They brought her there and they stripped her. And they made her kneel in front of them and they told her that she needed to give up her faith in Jesus. That's not what we believe. And she wouldn't do it. So they whipped her right there. And her husband took her home and he was cleaning up the wounds on her back. And he said, I want what you have. This strength that you have to endure that, what happened? And he became a Christian. And their whole family's Christian. Because she, because she chose to follow Jesus. And her family was saved. That's what we want. That's as our next point. A faithful family. In these verses, Jesus isn't saying that he's come to blow up families. That's not what he wants. 
what he's saying is that it's going to be very common for believers and unbelieving families to experience hostility. But in that, there's this beautiful promise, isn't there, of whole families that believe, whole families that are undivided by faith because everyone in that family has been reconciled in that right relationship with God. That's what we should want. And that's only by God's grace. We can't make that happen, and we're not entitled to that. But we should want that. We should ask God for that earnestly, and we should work for that. We should try to evangelize our unbelieving family members. Someone else after service, they mentioned how hard it is for for older saints to have older kids who have abandoned the faith, and you just ask, like, how long am I going to keep on holding out this gospel to them? My kids are idiots. And he said, well, why don't you hold it out as long as Jesus held it out for you? Keep on working. Keep on trying to share the gospel with your family. Keep on trying to shine that light. God's put you there. So that by his grace, maybe you would become a faithful family. Parents, believing parents, especially if you've got young kids, you need to take God's word so seriously on this. How many places where he has told us that it's our job to train them up in the gospel. It's our job to share the word of God with them. It's our job to teach them, to point them in that Godward direction. He's put us there first and foremost to do that. so that they would be reconciled to God and we would be a family that's undivided by faith. If you're here and you're not married, but you want to be married, you're looking for someone to marry, this needs to be the number one criteria that you have in your future spouse. Are they faithful? So that when we're married, we can be united in our faith. We can be pointing each other to God. A faithful family is going back to what God intended the family to be in the first place, a place of protection and comfort and companionship and training in righteousness. And that's what we should want. And by God's grace, many of you have that. I'm so encouraged by how many people in this church have faithful families, and not, and not just parents and kids, but like grandparents, whole generations of faithfulness in our church. Praise God for that, right? But even you faithful families, you need to remember this word that you still have to love Jesus more than your family. And I think really faithful families can be especially tempted in this because our families are so great. They are what God intended it to be and we can actually subtly begin to idolize our faithful family and love it more than Jesus. Kids, okay, are you paying attention? Everybody, come back, kids, look at me. If you're in a faithful family, praise God for your parents. And I know you're gonna wanna please your parents. You're gonna do what makes your parents happy. And that's okay. But God is more important than your parents. And you always need to be doing, first and foremost, what pleases God. You need to love Jesus more than even your parents. Parents, you need to be helping them do that. Parents, most of all, you need, to, you need to be willing to let your kids lose everything to follow Jesus. 
know, if you're good parents, you love your kids, you really care for them, you want them to, to do well in life and you want to take care of them. But we can't teach our kids about the cost of discipleship and then not let them pay the costs of discipleship. They may make decisions that you don't get, that you're not comfortable with because they're sincerely trying to follow Jesus. You need to let them. You need to love Jesus more than your kids. When I first became a parent, I had a pastor that told me right then, hey, get ready. Start preparing your heart now for the eventuality that, that maybe your kid will come and say, Dad, I want to go be a missionary in a place where I'm probably going to die for Jesus. And he, I'm so glad he told me that because it's probably going to take me 18 years to get ready for that conversation. But when it happens, if it happens, I want to say praise God. Let's pray. And let me help you get you there. Because we need to love Jesus more than our family. And even in that, we need to love this mission that Jesus has sent us all on more than we love our comfort and our peace and our, and our family being the way that we like it. Which leads to our last point. The faithful family. I'm sorry, the family of faith. I'm getting so emotional, I can't remember what I'm talking about. The family of faith. Mark chapter 10, Jesus has a conversation with this rich young man who comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus says, well, to follow me, you need to let go of all of your possessions. You need to sell what you have and give it to the poor. And he wouldn't do it. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. And this man's master was his wealth, was his money. And so he, he left. He didn't follow, didn't follow Jesus. And in Mark 10, 28, the apostle Peter responds to this. He says, Jesus, we've left everything. We've left everything and followed you. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children's, or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold. Now, in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Do you hear that? Jesus says, the one who has left everything, they receive eternal life. That's the promise. You've been reconciled with God. No matter what happens, you receive eternal life. But he says something about this time, doesn't he? He says, one, you're going to receive persecution. Get ready. But what does he also say? If you leave your family for the gospel, you're going to receive a hundredfold in this time. You're going to receive a bigger, better family. If following Jesus means your family rejects you, if it means you move far away from your family, you're not left an orphan. You get something so much more. The Gospel of Matthew is amazing because Jesus teaches us in it again and again to refer to God as our Father, our Father. And we're so familiar with this as Christians, I think we've forgotten how 
shocking that is. Jesus comes and he says, God is my father, but he can be your father too. Approach God like a father. And this is where the Apostle Paul goes on to develop this idea of our adoption in Christ. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, he says, In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And in Romans 8, 15, Paul says, The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption that works in us this belief that we cry out to God as Abba, Father. This is incredible. We went from being God's enemies to God saying, I want to adopt you as my own children. Isn't that such good news? Even if you had a great dad, God is a better father. Jesus says that that earthly fathers who are good are evil by comparison to God, who is a perfect father. And if you had a lousy dad, or if your dad wasn't around, You can have a heavenly father who says, I want to adopt you. I want to bring you in. I want to care for you the way that no dad could. I want to encourage you. I want to affirm you. I want to provide for you. I want to love you. I want to train you. I want to discipline you. Just like a father should. Just like you've always wanted. You can have that in God the Father through Jesus Christ. And just as an aside, this is why our church cares so much about adoption. This is why we want to help families adopt children because that's a little picture of the gospel to us and we love to see that happen in real life because it just reminds us of what God has done for us. But even beyond that, everyone who has been adopted by God are brothers and sisters. So not only do you receive a heavenly father, but you receive a family that numbers in the billions brothers and sisters. And that's not just a funny way that Christians like to talk. We believe that's true. It's a profound reality that we are actually brothers and sisters with these other people that Jesus has saved and we act like it. We try our best to act like this is really our family. This used to, to totally weird out the people in the first few centuries of the church. They didn't, they didn't have categories for this. Why would you treat people that are not your flesh and blood like they're your flesh and blood? Even more, why would you treat these people that are from a tribe that used to be fighting with? You're now acting like your brothers and sisters. You used to even think like, What's, what are they talking about? This husband just said he married his sister. And they got really confused because it doesn't make sense, but that's the reality that there are deeper relationships formed in the church than even the relationships of flesh and blood. The church is really the fulfillment and the restoration of all of the plans that God had for the family in the very beginning. The church is the deeper expression of what family was always meant to be. A redeemed group of people in a right relationship with God who provide for each other who love each other, who are one another's comfort, who are a training in Godwardness. That's what we're supposed to be, church. That's how Jesus can tell Peter that if you leave everything, you gain a hundredfold in this life. You gain an even bigger, better family. And I know many of you know that that's true. 
I know that I have felt that that is true. As I have followed Jesus and his call for me to be in ministry, it's led my family to move far away from my physical family. And I've got a great family, but they're hours away. But when I moved here, the very first day, I had a family. I had you guys. You were there to love me. You were there to help me. You've brought soup to my family when we're sick. You've been grandparents to my little kids. You've been babysitters when I really needed a babysitter. You're my family. And these family relationships are are deeper than the blood, flesh and blood relationships that we have because they're actually eternal. Do you get that? Our flesh and blood relationships will not continue in their current form into the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know exactly how that works. I'm sure we'll still recognize each other as, oh, that was my mom or that was my daughter. But in the new heavens and the new earth, we're not gonna be thinking about our earthly parents. We're gonna be thinking about God as our father. In the new heavens and the new earth, we won't be married to our spouses. Jesus is the bridegroom of the church. In the new heavens and the new earth, your kids won't be your kids, but we'll all be co-heirs with Christ. We're all brothers and sisters forever in eternal life, and that starts now in this time. So church, I know that you know how to be a family, but just like Ryan prayed, do this more and more. Love this family of faith like it's your own family. And in that, you find that you gain so much. The things that our hearts want because God wired us that way, designed us that way, we find in the church. It's such a blessing. If you don't have kids, you can't have kids, but you've always wanted kids. When our children's ministry starts up again, I will have a hundred kids for you. And you can love them. And you can train them up in righteousness because we're all a family. So in a way, those are our kids. They're all our kids. If you have a faithful family, praise God for that. But this family of faith is more eternal. So don't prioritize your your faithful family over this family of faith. Instead, use your faithful family to build up this family of faith. Open up space at your dinner table for people that don't have a family like you have. For people that are single or people that have left their families for the gospel, invite them in or even consider adopting a kid to bring them into your family of faith to build up this family of faith. If you're young in the faith, if you're trying to figure things out and you don't have parents that are faithful to show you the way, look around this room and see how many gray hairs there are and ask them to be your parents in the faith. And you older brothers and sisters, see them in that way as your children that you can train up. This is what Titus 2 is all about. The older men teach the younger men, the older women teach the younger women. And if we can do that, if we can do that more and more, then I think what Jesus said to Peter is true. Matthew 10, as I said, are some of the most difficult verses in the whole Bible. But we have to keep in mind what Jesus says at the very end. Verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
I think that's how he can say to Peter, you're gonna receive family a hundredfold. You just let go. Let go of the family that you're holding on to that's keeping you from loving Jesus more. Love me and you'll receive a church family. And most of all, you'll receive eternal life because it all goes back to where we started. We have peace with God that lasts forever because of our Prince of Peace. Let's pray in his name. God, thank you for reconciling us through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray if there's anyone in here that's listening, that's still at war with you, Lord, would you even use the light of your word this morning to lead them to lay down their arms and to be at peace with you. And God, would you work out peace within our church? Would you help us all to be reconciled with one another and to love one another like a family, the family that you made us to be? And Lord, I pray for those people outside of our church. I know so many people right now are thinking about unbelieving family members. God, I pray that you would use our church as a light in their households. Embolden them. Encourage them. Give them, give them strength that doesn't come from them so that they can endure and they can witness to you. And Lord, I pray that you would use their witness to bring people to repentance, people in their own homes to repent and believe in the Prince of Peace. In his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and respond. I once was lost in darkest night thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the I had no
Jesus your life or are you holding on to something else have you accepted this peace treaty that God offers you in Jesus if you haven't you can right now there's, there's no trick to it you just have to repent and believe if you have questions about that we'll have people here up front I'll be up here would love to talk to you answer any questions that you might have about that or you can email us Info at dscabq.com. And church, maybe you hear me talking about this and, and talk about how great our family is and you say, that hasn't been my experience. Or maybe you're new to the faith and, and you don't know what that actually looks like to, to treat the church like your own family. Well, we wanna help you get more connected in our church. We wanna help you build those relationships so that the church can be your family. So again, come talk to us, email us. We would love to help you, shepherd you in that process so that you can experience this hundredfold blessing that is the church. And just while we're, while we're talking about it, Pastor Ryan mentioned that in January we're gonna be having our members meeting and we're gonna be passing out these physical copies of our membership directory as a prayer guide. And you can think of that as like a family photo album, Right? only there's still a lot of photos missing. I've talked about this before. So if, if you haven't had your picture taken as part of your membership here at the church, so I'm talking to members of Desert Springs, we don't have your picture. So when we hand those out, it's gonna be a, a funny little cartoon that says no picture available, and that's who we're gonna be praying for, and that's who we're gonna be trying to get to know as a family. So can I please ask you again, email your pictures to us info at dscabq.com so that we can have that in there when we pass those out so that we can know who we are united together, adopted together in a family with so that we can keep on loving each other the way that God has called us to, okay? Okay, well, as we go, church, let me leave you with this benediction from the book of Hebrews. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, 
by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, this is great family time. Okay, so don't be in a rush to get out of here. You can talk to one another, even if it's somebody that you haven't met before. Figure out how you can pray for each other and and care for one another. But when you are dismissed like we have been, if you're down here, please make your way to those doors. If you're in the back, please make your way to the doors in the back. But we love you, family. We'll see you next Sunday.